It's the 75th minute, and with a midfield devoid of ideas and a strike force suffocated to submission, the manager must take one final throw of the dice. He spins on the spot and turns to his final hope. He turns to you. Can you handle the pressure? No? Well, thankfully, these 11 can. This episode, we celebrate the super subs, players who come alive after an hour on the bench, renowned game changers, the heroes in club folklore for moments rather than minutes. Arthur, super subs, our topic for today. I have to say, I'm a bit concerned that the manager is going to turn to me when he needs to make a <laughs> change in momentum. You're the impact right back that every squad needs. Absolutely. Bombing forward as per. I'm very excited to discuss this episode. A lot of good names came out in my research. Uh, we're playing a 4-4-2 today, a functional formation, and I'm very much looking forward to discussing them. Yeah, do get in touch on Twitter if you have any super subs you'd like to suggest should have been in the 11 it's at 11 pause that's the word and not the number uh, and true to form we're going to try and pick some slightly more obscure names so ollie gunner solskjaer doesn't make the cut today arthur no he's an obvious shout but i feel like we like to we like to dig a little deeper uh, come up with some unusual names and there certainly are some in today's 11 yes you're more likely to get norwegians like gunner haller in this 11 than Ollie. Now, I guess you can have goalkeepers that are super subs, those that come on to save penalties in shootouts and the like. I'm interested to know who you've picked, Arthur. Well, it's interesting you should say shootouts because one that I did strongly consider was Tim Krull, who obviously yes. came on for Sillerson. Uh, it was an inspired Van Hal uh, substitution, I believe. But in fact, I have gone for Jan Koller. <laughs> what? He, he's a striker, isn't he? Yep. It's the six foot eight inch Czech beanpole. He scored 55 goals in just 91 internationals and he had 245 club career goals. I must say, probably like you, I was completely unaware that his career started in the youth setup of Sparta Prague as a goalkeeper. Whoa, I'm flummoxed <laughs> by that. Although it's I guess he's got the bizarre. he's got the frame for it. You'd have to say that. He does indeed. He does indeed. Upon giving him a pro deal, uh, Sparta Prague decided that his stature could be more effectively used as a striker. It didn't take long for him to impress. In the following year, Lockeren whisked him off to Belgium, where he quickly proved that the fee of more than €100,000 had been money well spent. He plundered 91 goals in his last 140 games in Belgium, first with Lockeren and then Anderlecht, the best team in the country. At the latter, he formed a classic little and large strike force, which we enjoy in the eleven with Fulham legend Thomas Radzinski. <laughs> really? <laughs> Indeed. He had something similar on the international scene with Milan Barosh as well. Uh, and his style, I think, was quite atypical for a man of his height. He was far from gangly. Uh, rather, he had the natural physique to become a potent target man. Uh, and so the Bundesliga came calling. Borussia Dortmund signed him and it was here that he really made his name. He was an essential component of the team that won the, uh, won the title in his first season. And he had double figure goal scoring seasons in all four of his full seasons there. But why, I hear you say, is he a super sub? in the 11. Match day 12 of the 2002-03 Bundesliga season, Borussia Dortmund are away to Bayern Munich in the Klassiker. Okay. Collar had opened the scoring in the eighth minute, but Roque Santa Cruz and Claudio Pizarro had turned the tie on its head. But Torsten Frings had seen red in the 67th minute. Dortmund were down to nine men after goalkeeper Jens Lehmann was also sent off. So the coach remembered Collar's pedigree in goal and <laughs> called on him between the sticks. <laughs> and honestly, he rolled back the years. He made some unbelievable saves in the last 20 minutes of the game. Dortmund did go on to lose the tie 2-1, but Collar, of course, did keep a clean sheet in that 20 minutes. And he looked assured and confident. He, as you can imagine, was a presence at claiming corners 
when shots came in at him, he smothered them, didn't let them rebound and give opportunities to the waiting Bayern Munich strike force. And that performance actually saw Collar named by the Kicker magazine as the Bundesliga's top goalkeeper of the week, which I thought was extraordinary. That really is. I mean, we've had a few examples over the years of outfield players going in goal. I remember Kyle Walker doing a stint and John Terry as well, but none probably to the acclaim of Collar. And and I think very few will have had an idea that that's where he used to play. Absolutely. I think there were some very good performances in goal from some of these people. Rio Ferdinand was not one of those. <laughs> he looked a little bit shaky in goal. I remember Southampton had Dexter Blackstock in goal at one stage. John O'Shea was another one. Um, so, yeah, we've had some interesting names in goal. But Jan Koller, I mean, such was his talent. He could have very, very happily slotted into the Borussia Dortmund goal for more, more appearances than that. But he was such a good striker that he couldn't. Wow, there we go. The Czech international Jan Koller in an unfamiliar position in goal for the 11. Uh, and Arthur, you've taken the left back as well in the super subs. Very greedy. I have indeed. I, I snatched him early. I've gone for Vladimir Kinder. <laughs> Barra legend. He was, was he well, Slovakian? He was indeed. I'm not sure you could really call him a Borough legend, but he was a <laughs> Borough player. <laughs> In the same way he that was, Chris Riggett might be called a Borough legend, I suppose. Ex- exactly. They had a few Slovakians at the time. They had Slizard Nemeth as well, um, yes. but he moved there a little bit later. So Kinder was signed in early 1997 as a solution to the problem of Borough's very leaky defence. They were rooted to the bottom of the Premier League table. Uh, They signed Gianluca Festa at the same time, and he was an enormous success. But Kinder, I guess the problem was that neither he nor his manager, Brian Robson, quite seemed to know where he was going to play. He was naturally a left back, but they seemed to have signed him, I guess, for the sake of signing defenders. Borough's first choice left back was also their first £1 million signing, the gifted but very erratic Neil Cox. And so, in a sense, he sort of floated around kind of as a luxury, filling in whenever injuries required him to do so in a variety of positions and Borough were relegated. At the lower level, however, the fullback thrived as a key member of a newly solidified back nine. He was dependable as they come. He passed well. He linked up effectively with the attack and he wasn't averse to scoring the odd goal or two. After Borough's promotion, however, injuries and the arrival of Dean Gordon reduced him to a handful of appearances as a squad player in the 98-99 season. It was here that his eye for goal appeared again, and he was able to stand out for his contribution as a super sub. He made just five appearances in that second Premier League season, all of them from the bench, scoring two goals in just 145 minutes of football. Wow. The first of these, exactly. He was just he was just very, very effective coming from the bench. The first of his goals was just the cherry on top of a 3-0 victory against Spurs. But the second crucially delivered all three points in a 2-1 away victory against Coventry City. His contributions were fleeting, but oh so valuable. Middlesbrough fans, I found during that period of time, had an absolute roller coaster of emotion. They had relegation, promotion, an FA Cup runner-up medal and two League Cup final defeats. That's absolutely extraordinary in three wow. years. That's that's really exciting. I mean, uh, yeah, I really just hope that a lot of the newspapers pounced on a headline of Kinder Surprise when he did make his uh, super sub appearances. I think you're almost as good as Jeremy from the Peep Show with 3-0 Walcott. On <laughs> yeah, and I think the club shops missed the trick as well with potential Vladimir Kinder Corinthian characters in chocolate eggs as something that could be bought from the megastore. It's rare to hear of a defender that manages to pop up only once as a super sub. So for him to do it twice in a season is well worthy of an inclusion, I think. So the centre-back pairing, Ben, who's going to be alongside Vladimir? Yeah, we've eventually got to meet. And I'm going to go for Darren Powell. Oh, 
Darren. What yeah. A, what a injury liability. Yeah, I'm not surprised you said that, having read about his brief spell at Southampton. Darren Powlett is very best, was a classy, tough tackling giant of a centre half. He was six foot three. And during his playing career, he appeared over 250 times in the Football League and the Premier League. He touched a number of different clubs. He played for Brentford, he played for Palace, West Ham. Uh, and your team, Southampton, as well, Arthur. Sorry, so, interesting to hear that he he touched those clubs. He did. He touched them. His presence was there. Touched the touched the hearts of the fans. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the sort of paraphernalia and marketing collateral. He touched it, <laughs> and um, he actually nearly joined Reading as well um, at one point, but he failed a medical, which again you won't be surprised <laughs> to hear. Um, his career started quite promisingly. He was a non-league player at Hampton before he went on to Brentford and became their player of the year in 1999. And um, although they were playing in the lower leagues at that point, Brentford had a squad with huge potential. Herman Florideson was playing for them, Patrick Agumang, Ivar Ingemarsson, all players that would go on to play at Premier League level. And indeed, so did Darren. He had his moment uh, on the way to promotion to the Premier League as a super sub. He was at Crystal Palace, and this is the championship playoffs of 03-04. Palace were trailing to Sunderland as they headed into extra time. They were moments from exiting at the semi-final stage. But then Darren Powell was brought on in place of Danny Granville for a final assault on the Sunderland goal. What an inspiring substitution that is. <laughs> and sure enough, um, the giant centre-half popped up with an equalising goal to send the match on to extra time and penalties, which Palace would win. They would then go on to beat West Ham in the playoff final, and the rest is history. It's a great header, such a brave header at the far post from Powell, um, and it inspired the Eagles to get promotion in uh, in 04. I think he was known for being a tough tackling centre-back, but when you are of a stature of Darren Powell, at mm. six foot three, you are always going to be a weapon from corners. And so I completely understand why he was brought on as a, a substitution late on searching for that winner. My overriding memories, as I say, were, were of a man who was injured most of the time. But what you need to remember is his first season with us, he did play quite a lot. The injuries seemed to have disappeared a bit. And he was a very, very good defender, albeit at a slightly lower level in the championship. Yeah, injuries plagued his career. And I thought this was an interesting stat that um, although he would ultimately be the super sub in the playoffs for Crystal Palace, in that same season, he was subbed off injured on six separate occasions, which <laughs> is staggering, really. Over a, I mean, how unlucky can you get with injury that over a, a 46 game season, six times he had to be brought off the field injured? That's not ideal. But I guess by virtue of the fact that they are regularly substitutes, it probably hints that a lot of these players will have had their injury problems. It could be players in Darren's case, it's coming off. Mm. <laughs> but in a lot of cases, it could be players whose impact had to be from the bench because they didn't have the fitness to play 90 minutes or potentially they're just making their recovery from injury. Um, so, yeah, unfortunate, but a very, very good player nonetheless. Great. Well, Darren Powell will play at centre-back. And who's he alongside? He's alongside a man I've mentioned already for his stint in goal. It's John O'Shea. Oh, John O'Shea. What a player. Any fond memories of him finishing his career at Reading? Yes, actually. I think John O'Shea, to be honest, had more of an influence off the pitch at Reading than he did on the pitch. He was brought in as a player, but also was a coach for several years and he was universally liked and improved the way we were defending significantly. So um, yeah, Reading fans have a lot of time for John O'Shea. I was actually listening to um, a piece on TalkSport the other day where they were talking about how Cristiano Ronaldo was first spotted for Manchester United, having tormented John O'Shea in a pre-season game against Sporting Lisbon. And apparently he was so scarred by it that he basically went up to Alex Ferguson and said, you have to sign this player. So That's to some brilliant. extent, he was uh, responsible for uncovering one of the world's greats. I remember him as being a pretty, pretty good defender and a player who 
perhaps isn't given enough credit considering he played a key part in a very, very strong Manchester United side. First, he played along with Rio Ferdinand, then Mikel Silvestre and Wes Brown. But then Nemanja Vidic's arrival turned him into a bit more of an impact substitute. He moved to Manchester United from Ireland at a very young age and, and was a youth academy graduate at the club. And so I think whereas the likes of Ferdinand and Vidic were brought in for a reasonable amount of money, I think there was a, a bit of a sort of romance in having one of their own playing at centre-back for the club. One of the highlights of Man United's otherwise slightly disappointing 2004-05 season was the 4-2 away victory against Arsenal in which John O'Shea scored the fourth goal by chipping Arsenal goalkeeper Manuel Amunia from the edge of the 18-yard box. It's an extraordinary goal. I don't know whether you've seen it. I don't think so, no. I'm unsure quite why he is so high up the pitch, but as I say, he's on the edge of the 18-yard box and the touch is just so deft for a defender. And the look on his face when he scores it, it's just pure and utter shock. Yeah. (laughs) I've mentioned as well, during a league game against Spurs, he deputised for Edwin van der Sar in goal after van der Sar was taken off the pitch with a broken nose uh, and Manu had already used all three substitutes. During this time, he denied his Republic of Ireland teammate Robbie Keane uh, with a great save a few minutes before full time. And following the incident, United fans chanted, Ireland's number one in O'Shea's <laughs> honour, which I love. A month later, he won over many United fans by scoring a stoppage time winner against Liverpool at Anfield for United in the league, having come on as a substitute for Wayne Rooney, um, which again seems like a bit of a bizarre substitute, bringing off your key goal scorer and bringing on John O'Shea. It really does, doesn't it? And I, I actually think a lot of people throughout his career almost mocked John O'Shea for not quite belonging in that United side, but... It's good to hear about the impact he did make whilst not being a first-team regular. It wasn't just the goals when he came off the bench that made him a super sub in my mind. He made 44 sub appearances between 2006 and 2009, all three seasons bringing titles to United. And Sir Alex Ferguson was able to call upon his experience to settle a nervy defence or provide an extra man in defence to see out games. I think to have a defender of the quality of John O'Shea on the bench is such a useful weapon. I know, Mm. speaking as a Southampton fan, our criminal lack of depth at centre-back is too often exposed when we lose games 9-0, for example. (laughs) Um, But like so many who fit the brief of a super sub, he had versatility in spades. He could play anywhere across the back four or he could drop into midfield Uh, He fancies himself a great striker of the ball too, although one embarrassing incident led him to take possibly the worst ever attempt at goal against West Ham when he tried to score from range but only managed to boot the ball out of play for a throw-in on the far side of the pitch and the ball actually went backwards. It was extraordinary. On another occasion, he managed to nutmeg Figo. Figo later said, I'm not too good with remembering that kind of stuff, but if he was happy, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, mate. All right, mate. Yeah, fine. If I make you happy. (laughs) Uh, He went on to make 256 appearances for United and a further 226 at the heart of Sunderland's defence before, as I say, hanging up his boots at Reading. He had 118 caps for Ireland as well. I think he's an all-round legend of the game and I'm delighted we've managed to include him finally in an 11. Yeah, one of the game's good guys, John O'Shea. Uh, And playing alongside him to complete our back four is someone who would have played against John several times during his career. And that's Chelsea right-back, Giuliano Belletti. Very good shout, Ben. Do you remember him? Great signing. Was he a Mourinho signing? Yes. Yes, he was. Um, his his middle name is House. I found that quite bizarre. Giuliano House Belletti. 
was the TV series around for his parents to have taken that into account, or is it just uh, some I kind don't know. of? It's just a very peculiar choice, isn't it? Um, is but anyway, uh, Giuliano was a, a technically gifted fullback. He was cultured and pretty decent going forward, but he wasn't always. In fact, during his younger days playing in Brazil, he was a central midfielder, even an attacking central midfielder. He played for the youth team at Cruzeiro uh, in 1992, and he started to transition into a right back after a brief spell at Sao Paulo. He then moved to Barcelona. That was his big move, really. Um, And he went from being a regular in the 2004-2005 season to facing some pretty tough competition. A player called Oleg Guer, who you may or may not have heard of, um, was competing for the right back spot then who was far more defensive than Belletti uh, and was favoured at the time for that reason but that being said it was at Barcelona that Belletti had his infamous super sub appearance Uh, I don't know whether you know what I'm going to say here Arthur I don't think I do actually well uh, I'm going to cast your mind back to the Champions League final in 2006 so this was Belletti's first and only goal with Barcelona and it was the winner Uh, It was at the Stade de France and Barcelona were playing Arsenal. Arsenal incredibly unlucky that day. But Frank Rijkaard brought him on for Oleguer to have more of an attacking threat down the right-hand side. And Belletti scored the second goal, um, having come from behind uh, to win Barcelona the crown. It was a low-driven shot and it squirmed through Manuel Almunia's legs um, into the bottom corner. Uh, So he was the hero. I think I remember watching that final. I didn't remember Belletti being the hero, but obviously the iconic red card for Jens Lehmann early yes. doors. Funny, it seems to be a recurring trend because that's obviously what made Collar going goal. So yeah. uh, Jens needs to clean his act up. Jens is playing a part in this uh, 11 that we never expected. Belletti's reflected on this one moment of his career. He said, what I did was something special. Um, I couldn't believe it. I tried to get up and celebrate, but no chance. I knelt down with my hands on my face. So um, for some reason, suffered some paralysis during that immediate (laughs) moment after the goal. Um, And and like O'Shea, I wanted to mention, it wasn't just this one sub appearance that Belletti had. In fact, during a spell in the Premier League, he went 31 games, having made 22 sub appearances. So he was a consistent substitute, really, for Chelsea, someone that you could bring on to provide a little more attacking threat on the right-hand side. And he did actually consolidate himself as a bit of a cult hero. Fans loved him for his no-nonsense approach and his commitment to the cause. He was also hugely successful. He's actually one of only six players in the history of soccer to have won the Champions League, Premier League and World Cup. Wow. Can you name any of the others? Uh, hmm. no okay well it's (laughs) well let's just give our listeners two minutes of dead air while I have a little think (laughs) we've got Thierry Henry Fabian Bartes Gerard Piquet Pedro and Golo Kante and Giuliano Belletti on that list well done if you name them Fast bender to the back post. Is it all set up for Rio Ferdinand again in this fixture? Instead, low, bounces around and into the back of the net by John O'Shea. Manchester United, what a massive goal that is! And it's a smash and grab raid, but United have the point, surely. What a massive goal! As you know, if you're a regular listener to the 11, We not only talk about nostalgic footballers' careers, but we're also interested in what they do outside of the game. Recently, we featured Sebastian Schemmel, who has decided to open a restaurant in Luxembourg called Upton Park after his time at West Ham. So I thought Arthur and I could do the same. Come up with a restaurant inspired by our knowledge of nostalgic football to try and take on the big names of the high street. And what better name for our restaurant than Super Subs? We're going to take on Subway, Arthur. It's not going to be easy taking on a giant such as Subway, but I think that football fans will will fully invest in our puntastic place and yeah. uh, hopefully enjoy the subs themselves. 
I mean, if we do invest money in making this a thing, then we're going to rely on every listener across the world buying a sandwich probably every day on their lunch break in order to keep us going. So we're going to have to make it a pretty exciting experience, aren't we? Indeed. You'll enjoy your nostalgia. You'll enjoy your food. Hopefully we won't give you food poisoning, but we'll, we'll, you know, we'll do our best. We'll do our best. Well, Arthur and I are going to be serving um, and we've each got our favourite subs that are going to be on the menu at Super Subs. So um, we thought we'd talk you through them today. Arthur, what's yours? So I've gone for chili con carne. Ah, oh, chili con carne. One of our best sellers. It's not for the faint hearted. Uh, you've got strips of sirloin steak that are aged for a period of time that no one is quite sure of. Uh, <laughs> And they're aged in Carolina Reaper chili pepper sauce. So this is one of the spiciest subs on the market. I'm going to add a little bit of foliage to this. You've got a bit of rocket and some cucumber ribbons, uh, along with maybe some locally sourced garlic mayonnaise. I think this is the ultimate super sub, and I challenge you to better chili con carne. Chili con carne is one of our favourites here at Super Subs. Another one which is quite popular uh, in the lunch hour is the Speedy Danish. And this is named after Nicholas Bentner, who is the the quickest ever goal scorer, having come off the bench in Premier League history. It took him just six nice. seconds. Um, so the sandwich takes only six seconds to prepare, funnily enough. Um, oh. Danish bacon. We've got some German sausage to celebrate his barren spell at Wolfsburg. So it's quite meaty. Some gherkins. Four years, a bit of a wally. Uh, and also some mozzarella to celebrate this story. Uh, on a trip home to his native Copenhagen, Bentner went to a pizza shop completely blathered. There was a bit of a problem with his credit card when he realised he had no cash. So he threw a wobbly at the staff and said, don't you know who I am? I can buy the whole pizzeria. He was saved by two sympathetic onlookers who bought him a slice of pizza, preventing him from making a fool of himself. So just in honour of that story, yeah, there's some mozzarella in the speedy Danish. He could have been the next Sebastian Schemmel. He, could he have literally owned a pizza restaurant. Yeah. But actually, he's good for it. all he's Bender. done is provided us with the idea. And, and now he's unfortunately not going to be part of it. So sorry about that, Nicholas. But Absolutely. the speedy Danish is a, another good, good choice. Um, I think that sounds delicious, Ben. I think it's a, uh, a good option, two good options, in fact, for anyone. And um, of course, there will be further further subs coming out at some point soon. Uh, we've mm. got a few marketing ploys, perhaps, to get to pique your interest. I'd like mm. to propose the Game Changer, which yes. is a buy one, get one half price on weekday lunchtimes deal. Um, could also be the name of our seasonal pheasant sub. Yes, the Game Changer. I like that. That'll be good. Because, yeah. of course pheasants are often just wandering along the high street we'll be able to source them pretty well, easily um yeah i mean if you haven't been to super subs before you come in and you you wait on the bench where we basically start to prepare your subs so you can you can order something but if you change your mind at any point then arthur will hold up a board and say number seven speedy danish is replaced by number eight chili con carne and so forth until we've got the correct order for you the ovens are known as the touchline because that's where we warm up um but you're not allowed to go anywhere near those as a customer which is a bit of a shame and obviously there's a full experience you've got the premier league years up on the telly there's sort of retro football shirts we, we might wear retro football shirts um from time to time the music is all kind of like you know embrace ashes and republica ready to go it's all that kind of like pre-match music that's what we're trying to create we would potentially increase our overheads by hiring some mm. famous former super subs as our front of house staff so yeah. perhaps you know kevin phillips and jermaine defoe could be serving you your meals uh, i think it's not going to be an it's not going to be an inexpensive venture but i feel no. it's certainly going to be a crowd pleaser no, I mean, they may struggle to see over the counter if we only have Defoe and Phillips, not known for their height. But yeah, I mean, I've been looking at a few other experiential things that we could do. I mean, I think obviously just be careful because as you enter Super Subs, we do have a bouncer on the door who just checks the soles of your shoes to make sure there's nothing sharp before you walk in. 
Um, so be wary of that. And you'll also get a loyalty card. You're allowed two free concussion subs during the uh, the course of each year. So uh, if you get incur a head injury, then um, that's fine. And also a tactical sub. So if you, you're drunk after a night out, you can cash in your tactical sub as well um, at really Super like Sub. So we look after our customers. Um, but also to potentially aid you on getting drunk on your night out, mm. we serve only one beer. It's Grolsch and yep. will be served in jam jars. This will be referred to as Oli Gunnar Grolsch jar. <laughs> yeah yeah we do that um yeah i mean i've been working on a few marketing lines um just to kind of have up around the the town center and stuff on like posters so we've got strength in depth of flavor and we've got changing the formation of your gut which uh, for some reason sounds quite unpleasant. So I might need to work a bit harder on that. I think you need to, you need to retract that marketing slur. That's yeah. horrible. But any, any suggestions welcome really at 11 pods. I don't know what the timescale is for super subs, Arthur. I don't think we have a timescale. Whenever this works for our audience, whenever they decide that they are ready for super subs, super mm. subs will open. It will always be there, ready to go. Great. Well, this is sort of somewhat been the filling in the sandwich of this episode, and we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're moving on to the midfield now. So we normally go left to right uh, on our podcast when naming our footballers, but we've made a sub. So we're going to start on the right hand side this time. Arthur. I've decided to go for Malcolm Christie. Oh, do you know what? I've wanted to get him on an episode for about two months. Here you go. You're lucky, Ben. Thanks. I've managed it. Thanks, Arthur. But he was plucked from non-league obscurity when he signed for Derby County in 1998. He was playing for Nuneaton Borough. Mm. Um, whilst playing in non-league, he was also a supermarket shelf stacker. So um, he was certainly a rags to riches kind of story. Yeah. His first start for the club came on 15th of January 2000 and he marked the occasion with two goals in a 4-1 win against Middlesbrough and actually Middlesbrough was a club that played a big part in his career he ended up playing for them later in his career and also many of his best performances came against them more on that in a second on my ninth birthday he scored the winning goal at Old Trafford as Derby oh, beat Man U wow. 1-0 uh, to secure survival for the club. He said, I scored a goal in front of the Stretford end and that's something I'd always dreamed of. Just before I hit the ball, I knew I was going to score. I caught it sweet as a nut and it flew into the top corner. I remember running off to celebrate and Horatio Carbonari saying, calm, calm. <laughs> I was thinking, calm? I've just scored at Old Trafford playing against Man United. I can't be calm. <laughs> oh. It's such a throwback hearing the name Horatio Carbonari. Yeah, he is. He's one of the calmest footballers around. He is indeed. Unfortunately, his was another career that was riddled by injuries. Uh, this meant we often saw him making an impact from the bench. Two particular instances spring to mind. The first in 2000, after coming on as a sub for Derby against Middlesbrough in the 65th minute, with the Rams trailing 3-0. It was his first game of the season and he'd been struggling with a virus. Within three minutes, Christie had scored a Branko Strupar goal, half the deficit, before Christie levelled the scores in the 88th minute. It could have been even better, but for the offside flag, denying him a hat-trick. What an impact off the bench. Uh, and really the only reason he wasn't starting was the fact that he'd been struck down by this virus. So again, injuries creating this impact super sub. There was also the instance in 2004 when after a move to Middlesbrough, he took to the field as a 65th minute substitute with the game goalless against Brighton in the second round of the League Cup. His fine goal in extra time settled the tie uh, sending Borough through 1-0 after extra time. And though Christie would play no further part in their cup run due to his injuries, Borough would go on to win the cup, beating Bolton in the final, meaning Christie played an indelible part in the club's history. 
Uh, I remember that final, actually. They beat Bolton 2-1. I remember just being fascinated by the fact that it seemed to be the first final in my lifetime that was played between two thoroughly average teams. Yeah, I, I remember it too. I feel like that was our peak listening. I mean, we were both, what, like 28, 29. That was like football's peak, that Worthington Cup or League okay. Cup final. It was brilliant. It was a career, Malcolm Christie's, that promised so much. He had 11 England under-21 caps and a fine career. His goal-scoring form for Derby when he was fit was pretty good. Um, But his injuries just crippled him. He was forced to retire at only 29. Mm. And following his retirement, he took up a new career, working as a salesman for Jaguar. (laughs) I I actually did read this, yeah. Um, he, He almost seemed to me like an, an unlikely footballer Malcolm Christie didn't necessarily fit the mold of what you'd expect from a right midfielder or a striker at a Premier League level but hugely effective and, and again like a Premier League years-esque name that just springs up every now and then and, and has a great deal of nostalgia connected to it definitely who's going to be manning the centre of midfield then uh centre midfield um I've gone for Lewis McGugan <laughs> That is such a random shout, Ben. I, d- I think, was he largely a championship journeyman? Uh, he was, yeah, he played most of his time at Forest, to be fair. He was one of those that never quite fulfilled his potential. Uh, he was a creative midfielder who oozed class, technically good enough for the Premier League, but he never made it. And many fans questioned whether that was to do with his attitude and his approach to fitness. There are several stories you can read online about how he used to fiddle the scales at the forest training ground so that Billy Davis would play him, even though he hadn't (laughs) done his kind of regulatory fitness training that week. He had a slight arrogance about him, which certainly improved a lot of his performance. He had a flamboyance, but it also held him back. He was a dead ball specialist and actually his 40 yard free kick against Ipswich is generally considered on fans forums as one of Forrest's best ever goals. It's well worth a look, an unbelievably crisp strike. He came through the youth team at Forrest, making his first team debut at 17 in 2006. Uh, And it wasn't long before he'd secured a regular place in the starting lineup. He helped them to automatic promotion out of League One uh, and went on to establish himself as a consistent championship player. He played for Forest during a spell when they were known as the Tricky Trees, <laughs> which is a bizarre nickname um, because they were quite difficult to play against, particularly at the city grounds. But the reason I picked him for this Super Subs 11 was in 2013, when he was having a few struggles with his fitness and his attitude. Uh, He was in the championship with Forrest still, uh, and he scored in six consecutive games, five of which were from the bench and then was an unused sub the game after. It's I'll talk you through this process because it just baffled me. So... He played 24 minutes against Blackpool, scored 1-1. Then he played the full 90 against Burnley, scored 1-1. Then he was dropped for the game against Brighton, played 17 minutes, scored 2-2. Then he played only 18 minutes against Hull, scored 1-2-1. Then he played only 56 minutes, again from the bench, came on because of injury, scored 3-1 win against Wolves. Then he was a sub again, playing only 28 minutes against Ipswich, and they won 1-0 and he scored. And then he didn't even come off the bench against Sheffield Wednesday in the next match. Just the most bizarre period of time where he was consistently a super sub, literally scoring the goals that won matches and won points for Forrest, but not getting a start. That's utterly bizarre. Disappointing for him. Um, I also very much enjoy a quick peruse of his Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Uh, tells me that I think one of his mates has got access to Wikipedia and done a little bit of editing. Okay. Um, the style of play section concludes with, he now spends his days playing golf and gets mardy when he loses. <laughs> Classic Lewis McGugan. Yeah, he's, he's not actually officially retired. Um, he's, he's, what is he, 32, 33? 
Um, but he has been struggling to get a club. He's been looking around League Two level. I think he was last seen at Northampton Town. But yeah, Lewis McGugan, a super sub. A very good choice. Now, the other position uh, at centre midfield in our 11 is up for grabs. We'll have some nominations a little bit later. But Ben, to conclude the midfield for now, who's going to be playing at left midfield? It's none other than Guido. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't he play like three games in the Premier League? (laughs) He played several for Hull. Not many, admittedly. His real name is Mohamed Nagy. Uh, Guido is actually just a nickname, which means grandpa in Arabic. I don't know how he managed to get that nickname. He's an Egyptian forward and wide player, uh, played the majority of his career in his native Egypt. But he did make 14 appearances, actually, for Hull City between 2012 and 2014. He was part of Hull's bizarre obsession with Egyptians at the time. Uh, They also signed Ahmed Al-Mohamedi and Ahmed Fati in that same transfer window that they brought in Guido. So I'm not really quite sure why that was. He actually made an impact almost immediately as a super sub. On February the 12th, 2013, he came on at half time as a sub uh, for Robert Corran in a home match against Derby. And he scored the opening goal within 90 seconds of coming on. Uh, Hull would go on to win that match 2-1. But despite the fact that the Hull fans were hugely excited by Guido and what he offered, and in fact gave him a standing ovation after a championship fixture against Charlton Athletic, he kind of struggled to consolidate a place. It wasn't clear whether he was a striker or a winger. He had a few problems with injuries. And uh, as a result, that spell at Hull was, was never perhaps as long and successful as it should have been. But really, his super sub antics came for his country. I'm going to take you back to the 2010 African Cup of Nations. In the opening match uh, for the Egyptian national team, he scored the third goal in the 3-1 victory over Nigeria. Four days later, he came on again as a sub and scored a goal in Egypt's 2-0 win over Mozambique. In the quarterfinal of the tournament, he came on as a sub and he scored in Egypt's 3-1 win over Cameroon. Guido then scored again, having come on as a sub in the semi-final, scoring the fourth goal of Egypt's 4-0 win over Algeria. And then in the 2010 African Cup of Nations final against Ghana, he came on as a sub and scored the only goal in the 84th minute to win Egypt's the tournament, their seventh title. So if you were following that... You can you can see that Guido came on as a substitute in all six games of the tournament. He scored five goals, which made him the joint top scorer. It meant that, that is absolutely extraordinary. It, it really is. Wow. It, he he made the tournament dream team despite only having played 173 minutes of football over the course of the tournament, <laughs> which is Gosh. staggering. That is incredible. And actually, fine research, Ben. That's that's absolutely fantastic that you've managed to dig that out. What a goal scorer at international level. And also, I'm thrilled to announce that in November 2020, he joined newly promoted National Bank of Egypt. Oh, what a side. <laughs> what a How side. How is that a football team? I like, can you imagine signing for RBS? Yeah, <laughs> like... I know. Financial fair play would be a disaster over there, wouldn't it? <laughs> absolutely. with Gediura finding Blackstock quick feet from Blackstock to lay it off to McGugan wants an outlet right hand side no he doesn't wants to put it in the top corner from 25 yards Lewis McGugan with an absolute screamer leading the line today for the super subs 11 I suppose this is the easiest position to pick but we've tried to pick some obscure ones Arthur mine is a bit obscure in terms of a modern day crowd knowing quite who he is but he is nicknamed super sub and so I feel like it's an obvious pick, but has to be done nonetheless. I've gone for David Fairclough. Do you know what? He came up in my research. So David was born, raised, and he was a youth team player at Liverpool. Uh, he was Liverpool through and through, 
The trouble was the pecking order of strikers at the club saw him very much trailing behind the dream duo of Kevin Keegan and John Toshak, as well as England centre-forward David Johnson. Prior to the Premier League's onset, David Fairclough made more appearances off the bench than any other footballer in Liverpool's history. Of the 154 games he played in eight years as a professional for the club, 62 were his substitute. That said, despite being perennially remembered as the 12th man, he still enjoyed the kind of success that most footballers can only dream of during his 16-year spell. He was part of a squad that was arguably the best club side in the world for at least part of the eight years he spent professionally at Anfield. The squad contained Jimmy Case, who I've mentioned on this pod before, uh, and achieved unbelievable success on the European level and domestic level. For someone who was in and out of the team and never truly got the chance to impress for a sustained period, his goal-scoring record was pretty good. In 92 starts, he scored 37 goals, and he scored 18 in 62 appearances from the bench. Uh, He also won plenty of trophies, as I've said, including four league titles and two European Cups, one UEFA Cup, one Super Cup and one League Cup at Liverpool. And he became known as Super Sub, which is actually the title of his autobiography, because he developed this knack of scoring crucial goals from, from the bench. He'd already scored six times coming off the bench, including an 88th minute winner in the Merseyside derby against Everton at Anfield in 1976. By the time the European Cup quarterfinal against Saint-Étienne arrived, in this game, he'd probably score his most famous strike for the club. He latched on to Kevin Keegan's through ball. Uh, The redhead striker then held off two Saint-Étienne defenders to score the tie's decisive goal at the cop end and seal a 3-2 aggregate victory. ITV commentator Gerald Seinstadt famously bellowed super sub strikes again and (laughs) really the legend was born there so it's interesting in in a past episode we discussed whether journeyman could be considered derogatory in any way it kind of seems like super sub appears to be that way and it was something that he regrets about his career he was constantly left out of the starting lineup and felt left down by Liverpool coach Bob Paisley he said I was very disappointed. I played in the FA Cup semi-finals against Everton, started both games and had all the celebrations to go to the cup final. Leading up to the FA Cup final day, Bob Paisley tells me I'm going to play in the final. It never happened. Mm. He explains, you'll play next week in Rome. I'll need you in Rome. This is for the European Cup final. Then in Rome, I was a sub. And so I think he felt incredibly let down by the fact that he was constantly promised these opportunities and never granted them his teammate Emlyn Hughes had this to say of him Dave is a bit of a secret weapon often he'll start the match and play for 90 minutes without doing a thing yet he'll come off the bench as substitute and within minutes score the most amazing goal ever but he'll settle down into a great player of that I'm sure he had to be included in this 11 it's his opportunity to thrive at the center of our strike force finally getting a starting berth (laughs) uh, which he'll be delighted with I'm so glad we could provide David with that. Um, and he is alongside a legend of Birmingham City, Walter Pandiani. Oh, Walter. David and Walter up front. Oh, Love what that. A, what a classic sort of 60s armchair strike force. He was a Uruguayan striker, Walter Pandiani, who had his most successful spells in Spain with Deportivo uh, and Osasuna. And he was known for his strength and aerial ability. In fact, he uh, was attributed with the nickname Rifle because of this, which seems to have nothing to do with strength or aerial ability. But hey, he was the second highest scorer of sub goals in La Liga history behind Messi, 20 goals in 116 appearances as a sub. But most impressively, and what I wanted to talk about today He is one of only five players to have come on as a sub and scored a hat-trick in the Champions League. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain in 2001, they went into the break Deportivo three goals down. Pandiani came on as a second-half substitute and scored three headers to help Deportivo 
turn the tables on the night and win that game 4-3. He describes having an almost out-of-body experience that day. (laughs) He said, I was not confident of playing, but I warmed up as never before. There were the most intense warming up minutes of all my life. And at that moment, as strong as I felt, I had a premonition. I didn't want to say anything because people will answer, you're crazy. But at a given moment, I said to Scaloni, if the mister brings me on, I will score three goals. I know this is something I tell you now and you don't believe me. But at that moment, I believed all my words. So um, almost an out-of-body experience led to Pandiani being probably the best super sub in Champions League history. That is an incredibly big shout, being the best super sub in Champions League history. But it's undoubtable that that impact was absolutely extraordinary. I remember him in the Premier League with Birmingham City being just a very physical striker. He was quite quite large, pretty powerful. And actually, I believe he scored a goal on his debut against Southampton, which is obviously a bit devastating for me. But he never really had that lengthy impact in the Premier League. I don't know what, what it was, um, whether he just failed to adapt to the different country, the different league. I think my research suggests that Pandiani didn't really want to go to Birmingham. Uh, apparently, he <laughs> favoured a move to Fiorentina, but uh, Deportivo sent spent time sending the facts back in the day, and uh, that move fell through. So Birmingham was the only option. A comical video you can see online. I really feel for him. There's a video on YouTube of Walter Pandiani delivering a press conference while he's playing for Espanyol. And he starts sweating at about the 22nd mark, wearing this sort of light grey shirt. And that's all I'm going to say. But I mean, by the end, he is swimming. And I just feel so sorry for him. It's really worth a watch. He is the sweatiest super sub in this 11, without any doubt. So it's time to decide the midfield accomplice to Lewis McGugan. Who will play alongside him? So we've got a nomination from Hugo Schechter, who is the founder of the Player Care Group, who specialises in consulting, staff recruitment and education for people in player care. He's formerly the player liaison officer at Southampton and West Ham as well. Let's see who he's nominated. My central midfield nomination for Super Sub is probably a bit of a stretch because he normally plays as winger, but uh, mine is the commentator and Kitman's uh, least favourite player, I'm guessing, uh, Everton's Dinyar Billionet Dinov, which even I've managed to mess up. Um, but he was a play- Russian player for my boyhood team, uh, Everton. And he was known for some absolute bangers. And if you, I had looked back on YouTube for some of his clips uh, because I remembered him just scoring a, a worldie or two. And uh, yeah, he got nine goals and no, no bad ones, that's for sure. Um, he had primarily a winger, but did play on occasion down the middle a little bit more and including some fantastic goals. Um, I think he won goal of the season. He could have won goal of the season three times. Uh, so... For that reason, he is my uh, pick as super sub. And uh, yeah, an Everton legend, even though he didn't really uh, ever make it work. Diniar Bililetinov. I mean, that is one of the best names in Premier League history. Well, I'm sorry, you've blown you've blown Hugo's pronunciation out the window there. That is wonderful pronunciation. <laughs> That's how I'd say it was. Bililetinov. That's incredible, Ben. I was I was thinking kind of Billyatadinov or so I don't know, but I think yours sounds far, far more professional than oh, mine. We'll, we'll have to ask him. <laughs> Hugo. Indeed. Awesome shout. Thank you, Hugo. Talking Kit is a, a fantastic podcast uh, about nostalgic football kits over the years. Um, I've listened to it myself. Do check it out. They've made a nomination too. Hi, it's Aaron from Talking Kit here, and thinking of my central midfielder super sub, there can only be one choice. Let me take you back to the 28th of May 1997, and we're in Munich for the Champions League final between Borussia Dortmund and Juventus. Now Dortmund are holding on 2-1 after a Del Piero goal in the 65th minute. There's a substitution made, and on comes 20-year-old Lars Ricken in the 70th minute, with Dortmund desperately trying to hold on to secure a first European Cup. 
He'd been on the pitch no longer than a minute when he's released up the pitch from a beautiful ball and he unleashes an audacious lob over Italian keeper Peruzzi, scoring the third goal for Dortmund and therefore securing their first ever Champions League win. Lazaric went on to play 301 games for Dortmund, scoring 49 goals. But this, without a doubt, is the most special he would have scored. So my choice for super sub central midfielder has to go to Lars Ricken. Yeah, great shout. Thank you, guys. Check that one out on the poll too. Arthur, you've made a nomination. I have indeed. I've gone for Joe Tessum. Oh, I, do you know what? I've seen him score a goal from the halfway line in a pre-season friendly. Yeah, uh, oh, Southampton brilliant. came to Reading in a pre-season friendly and he scored from the halfway line. It was very impressive. What a legend. What a legend. He's a six foot three inch Norwegian former policeman oh, uh, wow. known for his versatility. Uh, he made his debut for Southampton as a replacement for Jason Dodd at right back and even partnered James Beattie up front on the occasion. But he was naturally a centre midfielder. 2001-2 season, when he first became a bit of a super sub, he scored the equaliser in one-all draws against both Arsenal and Sunderland after coming on as a sub. In the former, he scored in the 80th minute, and in the latter, the 88th. So a big impact late on in games. I guess the idea of bringing on quite a physical, tall presence similar with Darren Powell, was just quite a useful tool for Southampton to be able to have. He played in the FA Cup final against Arsenal in 2003, uh, coming on as a late substitute for Anders Svensson. Sadly, he couldn't impact the outcome of that day, uh, and Southampton did lose. His final tally for the Saints was 130 matches and 16 goals. I guess he was largely on the bench because he was just a, a little bit average, really. He wasn't a starting quality Premier League centre midfielder in my mind. And so he had to simply impact games from the bench. I also found it quite interesting that players who do play in the Premier League at this kind of level, usually if they do play in the lower levels towards the end of their career, they play just a handful of games if they even entertain the idea at all. Tessum first managed Tottenham Ealing, winning the Wessex League with 100 points. And then he played 97 games for them in eight years. Wow. I, I think that's just bizarre. Like you often <laughs> see maybe like one or two games, the kind of Edgar Davids bit part yeah. end of his career thing. But Tessin was an, an integral part for them. Bizarre. <laughs> really, really bizarre. So a bit of an uns unspectacular end to his career, but I'd like to just give a nod to him for those those key impacts off the bench as simply that's all he could really hope for. Brilliant. Joe Tesson will be part of the poll. Finally, I've nominated a player. I've gone for Kevin Prince Boateng. <laughs> Very good player. Bit of a journeyman as well. He was a journeyman. Played for Portsmouth and Tottenham in the Premier League, AC Milan, Barcelona. He was a bit of a journeyman too, though. Uh, a flashy live wire of a midfielder, capable of the unexpected and some dazzling wonder goals um, and equally exuberant celebrations. A bit of a bad boy tone good in a way as well, fighting racism on the front line in Italian football. But during his younger days, he was out spending all his money going to wild parties, he once bought a Lamborghini, a Hummer and a Cadillac all in one day whilst at Tottenham. Um, so certainly living the high life. But he's in this super sub um, nomination because of a game in 2011 when he was playing in Milan. He came on as a substitute and spurred an incredible second half comeback, much like Pandiani, as the Serie A champions recovered from 3-0 down to win 4-3 against Lecce. Boateng made an instant impact. He gave his side hope by rifling a stunning half volley into the net in the 49th minute. Six minutes later, he lashed Antonio Cassano's neat layoff into the net. Uh, and amazingly, the comeback and Boateng's hat-trick was completed in the 63rd minute. So just 14 minutes after his first goal. Mario Yepes, who you might remember, did get the winner in that game. Uh, but Boateng, all three... Uh, of the equalising goals. So a super sub without a doubt that day. Absolutely. Very good shout there from you, Ben. 
Yeah, so head over to the poll. It's on Twitter, at 11pod, the word and not the number. And you can vote for the second central midfielder. Less than three minutes remaining. And a draw here is a result that would please the other challengers for the championship. But look at this from Fairclough. Still going. On the bench, a few names that we couldn't quite make room for. Adam Lafondre, a Reading player, of course. I was pained to leave him out after his impact in two consecutive Premier League games against Newcastle and Chelsea coming off the bench to score. He was a bit of a live worst super sub for Reading. Uh, and also Stuart McCall. I didn't include him um, because actually he wasn't a successful super sub. He came off the bench in 1989 in the FA Cup final and scored twice for Everton. But unfortunately, they didn't win. It was their rivals, Liverpool uh, and Ian Rush, who sealed the win that day. Torre Andre Flo as well. Incredible impact substitution at various points. So running you through the team, uh, we've got Jan Collar in goal. A back four of Vladimir Kinder, John O'Shea, Darren Powell and Giuliano Belletti. In the midfield, we have Malcolm Christie on the right, Lewis McGugan, partnered by a midfielder of your choice. Head over to Twitter for that. And on the left, we've got Guido, and then up front, David Fairclough and Walter Pandiani. Thank you for listening. Listening.